Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hey, I'm Jeff Cohen. Everything you hear on WNPR, from local news and talk shows to the national programs you love, is made possible because of listener support. You make it happen. You give the radio its signal, the computer its stream, the smartphone its podcast. You make it so we can reach you wherever you are. We love that you listen, but we also need your dollars. Go to WNPR.org and click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for helping out. Hi, this is Colin. I wanted to do a show about language, how the English language is changing. But I didn't want to get bogged down in a lot of complaining about how people misuse the word literally. I didn't mind some of that complaining, but it seemed to me the bigger story was that when language changes, political perceptions change. And when political perceptions change, language changes. I assembled what turned out to be a terrific panel to have that conversation at Watkinson School. You're about to hear it right now. Before I introduce the panel, I'll just quickly say, when you do what I do for a living, people notice your words more than you do. So like the other day, I got an email from a guy who said, I say the word notion too much, and he would like me <laughs> to stop saying the word notion. <laughs> And I shared this with my colleague, John Dankosky, who then took it upon himself to point out every time that I said notion for the rest of the week. But what I said to the person who wrote me the email is, I'm going to introduce you to the guy who wrote me an email saying that I say the word trope too much, um, and that he would like me to stop saying the word trope. And then I'm going to introduce both of you to the woman who said that I have this bad habit of saying to my guests, talk about that, mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, when I want them to talk about something, I say, talk about how that was. And she said that her kids are in the back of the car, and they start screaming with laughter uh, every time I say, talk about that. Actually, with her, I said, you have to start hitting your kids. Um, <laughs> that's the only way this is going to get solved. But, I mean, it is sort of true that when you listen to somebody on the radio, you notice all their little tics. You, learn, you notice how they learn, they use language. Well, we're in many ways unconscious of how we use language. We're very conscious of how other people use it. I, I think we have a great panel here tonight to talk to you about all this. We're gonna talk about how the language is changing, whether it should change or not. We're also gonna talk about how that comes out in our civil and uncivil discourse. So, it's now time to meet the panel. Sitting closest to me, uh, somebody who is close to me. We've known each other, I don't know how long. Oh, no, we won't talk about it. Susan Campbell is uh, here, she is, I just realized, uh, read on the website, you're a distinguished lecturer, I know. I know. That, that was my reaction <laughs> too, actually, at that, you know. It's on my business card, I yeah. laugh every time <laughs> yeah. I hand one out, it's like, here you go. She oh, is a distinguished lecturer at the University of New Haven. You'll find out tonight exactly how distinguished uh, she is. And she's also a columnist for the Hartford Current, has been for a long time, also for the website Connecticut Investigative, uh, Health Investigative Team, and the award-winning author of Dating Jesus, Fundamental Feminism in the American... Some Dating Jesus fans out there. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. It's like I just said James Taylor. He sang Fire and Rain. You know, people start applauding. You know, 
Also, uh, Tempest tossed the spirit of Isabella Beecher Hooker. Sitting next to her is uh, Humphrey Tonkin, University Professor of the Humanities and Professor Emeritus at the University of Hartford. If I were to try to tell you all the international boards and study groups and organizations that, that are involved with the field of linguistics that Humphrey is either in charge of or was in charge of or intends to take over very soon, or we would be here all night. But I will mention that he's past president of the Universal Esperanto Association and the International Spencer Society. So any questions about the Fairy Queen should go directly to him. You don't even have to go through me, just talk to him directly. Sitting next uh, to Humphrey is Michelle Anjirbag. Uh, she is uh, an independent scholar. She is a journalist uh, down, down along the coastline and an experiential educator. I discovered her. I suddenly realized that I was putting together this wonderful panel, but all of us were, oh. let's, let's say, oh, oh yeah, I was going to say like <laughs> over the age of 45 or something, but that's actually we're way over the age of 45. So there's going to be somebody young, so when something comes up, you know, most of us think a sick burn is something you have to go to the hospital for. <laughs> so uh, we need help. I thought, I better get somebody young. So I, I was thrilled to discover Michelle, and since, since then she's guest taught your oh, class. And... She, taught, she taught it better than I did. You can't come back. All right, so... <laughs> And then lastly, but certainly not leastly, because he's the guy who gets to rule on everything. There is no, he's like the Supreme Court of Language. There's no appeal above Peter. Peter Sokolowski is editor-at-large at Merriam-Webster, where he works on the Word of the Day podcast, Ask the Editor videos and short articles about word trends, etymologies. No matter what the rest of us think about anything, Peter will just basically say, well, I'm sorry, but that's, <laughs> that is not the case. So, okay, I have apparently a problem with notion and trope and talk about. Did the rest of you have, you know, I sent you an article about fingerprint words, words that maybe you use a little bit more than the average person. And you might not be aware of that, too. You have to have some annoyed listener tell you. Does anybody have a fingerprint word here? Yeah, Michelle, you've got one? Um, I overuse the word ontology um, because, <laughs> of <laughs> because of what I study in my areas of interest, uh, which is essentially looking at the way that people write from their specific points of view and understand literature from different points of view, informed by their life experience, their cultural heritage, um, all sorts of different factors which do touch slightly more on anthropology than on literature. Ontology is a word that I have found myself defining in countless papers, conversations, and thinking that I should stop using it, but I don't have another word. Do you have a word? Yeah. It's, it's a good example of those like Latin words, those Latin-sounding words that make you sound smart. That, that, <laughs> that, um, and, and that's why the entire vocabulary of, of law and government and medicine, those are all Latin-based words. And so, no, I mean, you're, you're, it's a kind of meta-writing, right? You're writing about writing, or you're right. writing about culture. And that's where these words are useful, because uh, it's not a concrete thing. It's an abstract thing. And the more abstract your uh, subject is, the more frequently you're going to use Latinate words. It's just that simple. So you're using the correct term. Can I cite you the next time? And Absolutely. Them send them, send them to me. Perfect. I've, I've discovered Anthem Blue Cross does not cover an ontologist. Okay, <laughs> I just, they say you're on your own. Paper on group. the other hand, when you go to the doctor with a sore throat, he says, you've got laryngitis, <laughs> and charges you. So all he's done really is translated into Greek. They're <laughs> really all translators. So do you, do, you have, do you know, do you have a fingerprint word? You speak? Well, you know, if I had one, I would stop using it. So, yeah. so I'm not aware of it, but I'm sure it's out there. Right. I should also say, Colin, 
that you were the subject of a somewhat informal study when I was teaching language and society some years back. I asked my students to compare your sentence structure with that of John Dankowski. Mm -hmm. It turns out they are radically different. Oh, yes. His is clear, mine is unclear. Yeah. Well, you said it. I didn't yeah, I say it. I'm saying but, the obvious. Um, but, but in fact, they're very different. It's, it's interesting. All right, what's yours? I, no profanity. Uh, no profanity. Yeah. I got nothing. No. Um, actually, I would like to now show just how distinguished I am. My word is particularly. Mm. And Peter Pock, my editor at the Hartford Current, has now turned it into a drinking game. Every time <laughs> I throw it into a column, because it just seems really important, he takes a swig. Don't tell him I told you that. Particularly. <laughs> All right, so now let's get to the transgender part of this. So there's a series on Showtime called Billions that I really like, and uh, they introduced a character this year uh, whose uh, name is Taylor, and when she went in to introduce herself to uh, the hedge fund operator, uh, played by Damian Lewis, Taylor said, Hello, sir. My name is Taylor. My pronouns are they, theirs, and them. And Taylor is transgender, and that is how she... And this guy who's like a pretty macho... Uh, hedge fund guy said, okay. So this is a new ground. This is really different. This isn't about agreement anymore, Michelle. This is about how people want to be referred to. They don't want to be referred to as he or she. That's not where they are right now. And there have been some competing systems, right? There's a ZE system and an HIR system and stuff like that. I don't know. Do you want to say a little bit more about that and how you see that playing out? Would you like me to talk about it? Yeah, I would like you to talk, talk about that. <laughs> What kind of notions do you have about that? <laughs> well, it's a reoccurring trope in yeah. terms of modern society. Um, I, I, I knew, somehow or other, I knew the young person would be the first one to attack me and begin making fun of me. That was a sick burn. Yeah, that was a sick burn. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think what we're seeing, at least what I see as a millennial, as somebody who's part of different writers groups that are made to be inclusive worlds for either transgender or non-conforming, or um, there are really a multiple of terms that are becoming part of public discourse, which because I am, if you ask about rules that I stick to, it's um, I am not a member of that community. I don't have the right to define it. Mm -hmm. But as somebody who attempts to be an ally, what... I see and what I hear, um, which again, it's not my place to define or specify whether it's right or wrong, is that there's a growing awareness amongst people that society has pushed conformity upon a multitude of different identities. And that doesn't always work when it comes to the fact that we live in a world where more people can express themselves according to how they feel versus what is imposed upon them. So, um, yeah, there is the ZX endings to a lot of words. Um, we spoke briefly about how you're seeing Latinx in response to the fact that Spanish is an overly gendered language or just a standardized gendered masculine language. You're also seeing uh, more common to, instead of looking at somebody saying, assigning pronouns to them, if you go to conferences, you now see, um, hello, my name is and my pronouns are. I think for some people this sounds a bit excessive or it sounds a bit silly, but I think when we're talking about language, there's also a very large social component about the fact that language is not arbitrary. It's about actors within a space at a certain time. So as people choose to use different language and choose to put themselves forth into the world through their words more and more, that's what social media is. Your words are taking the space of yourself in an undefined setting 
that kind of identification becomes more and more important. And having that space and having that space in the way that we speak about language, I think, becomes more and more important to reflect that. Perhaps the rest of the panel would agree with me that language and how it changes is always indicative of how society is reinterpreting itself over time, to an extent. And there's push and pull, and there's always going to be the backlash. And I think we're also seeing some of that backlash now. But I mean, it's like I said, it's not my place to weigh in whether it's right or wrong or if one's better than another because it's not something that I'll ever have to contend with. I'm privileged to be comfortable with my gender and sexual identity and all of that wrapped up in one neat assignation. Doesn't the question have to do with the, the relationship between language and society itself? Namely, that language follows, it doesn't lead, I think. So as things change, language adapts, and it's a rather painful and complicated process. But it does. I don't know what stop and shop you use, for example, but um, I was really surprised the other day as I was checking out because the um, person who was checking me out said, debit or ontology? <laughs> and you know, now I know where this came from. But, but in, fact, in fact, I think it is that we struggle with language constantly because we want to be able to express the situation that we collectively are in. But it's a very difficult process. Yeah, so just to make this sort of clear, what we're talking about here, how it would play out, Susan, this character in Billions, Taylor, you see, you would say Taylor parked their car, you know, in the visitor's parking lot. Mm -hmm. Or you would even say, dropping her name out of it, they parked their, their car in the visitor's parking lot. So I think what you're saying, too, is, so initially it clangs against the ear, right, to do that. But maybe we just learn, we do it enough, enough repetitions, yeah. As we're talking, I'm thinking about the discussion of how to define people who are living with challenges, mental challenges. Mm -hmm. I can remember getting in a long and heated argument because I'd just come back from an organization that had retarded as part of its title, even while they were trying to distance themselves from that word as an identifier of their clients. Mm -hmm. And they um, wanted to be known by their acronym as opposed to the entire name, which included that word that was offensive mm -hmm. to them and to others. And I remember arguing with a copy desk person to say, as you're saying, their clients don't want to be known as that. Well, that's what they're called. Okay. <laughs> but they don't want to be known as that. So in a sense, I think, yes, language follows the culture, but I think language can also lead the way. In some ways, particularly on this discussion about pronouns, and I think you said it beautifully, that if you're not of that community, it is not your purview to be able to identify for them, them. Right, although then they, them. meaning the members of the community, have to get the rest of society. There's a buy-in that either takes place or doesn't, right? Which, which is the point. Yeah. It isn't that language leads the way. Mm -hmm. It is that you use language to lead the way which is an important distinction. That's splitting a hair. Mm, I don't think so. I don't think so. It touches upon something that's been, I think, debated by linguists for decades. It's, what it, it's called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Is it that the social society determines language or does language determine... <laughs> she does not like that hypothesis. No, I'm no. saluting it. Rock on. Excuse me, I'll keep my hands yeah. to myself. See the name of the hypothesis again? It's, um, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis is yeah. a shorthand for it. It does have another name, which I'm not going to be able to recall right yeah. now. But it's, does language determine culture or does culture determine language? Right. And it's a huge debate in, again, I think linguistic societies as well as anthropologists. It's kind of this unwinding of how do we decide how we speak and what we say. And there's no answer. You can argue it 
many, many different ways. I stopped myself from saying myriad. Just for you. <laughs> and I think actually most linguists would say that they would espouse some version of soft Worfianism, as it's called. Mm -hmm. Namely, that, that language does affect the way we think and the way we respond to things, but not to the extent of excluding other ways of approaching them. And, and, I mean, there, there is a, something called the TED Radio Hour. There was a TED Talk that I heard of a young man who, who, who came uh, from Vietnam uh, as an immigrant and uh, insisted that since the subjunctive tense does not exist in his parents' native language, that they have no notion of this abstract idea of if I had been or if I were able to, and that therefore there was this concrete sort of uh, practical character that was expressed in his parents' lives. And it's garbage. I mean, yeah. that's total garbage. Just to say that you don't have a, a, a particular tense that we have in another language is not to say that they do not have that thought. Now, on the other hand, there are languages like Russian, for example, that have an intermediate color between uh, blues, and much as we have a, a word for light red in English, we have the word pink. And so we can think about these two things in a different way. And, and in Russian, apparently, there is a word for light blue, and they don't have to qualify the blue. It's pink of blue, you know, that kind of thing. And, but that doesn't really mean that, they don't, that we don't have that color. You know, um, uh, that we can't experience it, that we don't, uh, you know, have emotional reactions to it that may be culturally specific, but nevertheless equal. On the other hand, the distinction between pink and red, the borderline, may be different in different of cultures. Of course. But these are, this is why you say it's actually both, isn't it? It's both. All right, we'll be back. We're live from Watkinson School with this great panel. Happy, happy, holy, bagel, bugle, bowling, macadamia. All right, so who gets to make the rules in a society? So one of the things that I discovered today, which I think Humphrey already knew about, and you probably do too, is this Yale project where they really are trying to document how standard English changes depending on where you are, or what's considered more or less standard. And so, for example, the other day, John Kasich, who was brought up close enough to Pittsburgh to speak in a kind, there's a kind of Pittsburgh talk, which my colleague John Dankowski can do, and it's very alarming when he does it, um, and um, in which, for example, the word you is yins. So the other day, John Kasich was on, like, Meet the Press or something, and he was talking about, I think, the Healthcare Act, and he says, it needs fixed. It needs fixed. That is very much part of that dialect in that, you know, and in fact, on this Yale thing where they're mapping things out, they call it the needs, needs washed. The car needs washed. Mm -hmm. So the, basically, one of Humphrey's infinitives, it's not really an infinitive, it's to be washed, gets just changed into washed. But if you're from a certain area, that doesn't clang against the ear. That's the way most of the people around you talk. In fact, I was looking at Missouri. <laughs> He had this thing called the positive anymore. I don't think I've ever heard you do it. Positive anymore. The positive anymore. So they still sell greeting cards anymore there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know that one? I do, but I'm from a very unique part of Missouri, the Ozarks, so we have our own language, and none of this <laughs> makes any sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, what we're saying doesn't make any Not sense? Not at all. Okay. But, Humphrey, that gets into the question of who makes those rules and who, who decides those rules. I mean, Michelle, you were talking about code switching. Code switching is usually means, well, actually, you're a panelist. You explain what code switching is, and then I'll give an example of it. Uh, you actually might be able to explain it better than I can, but in a practical sense, it's we have a, I have a different way of speaking when I'm speaking now versus when I'm speaking when I'm teaching, um, doing the experiential education work out in the woods versus when I'm teaching in a classroom or when I'm interviewing someone as a journalist. All of these different 
spheres have their own way in which I speak. Code switching is as I'm changing between those different kinds of speech or those different ways or patterns which I might use, mm. I'm switching codes. So a very vivid example of this was, I think, during the 2008 campaign, but it may have been afterwards during his presidency. President Obama was in Philadelphia buying a cheesesteak, mm. uh, and he, you know, what I'm, you know where I'm going, right? And so uh, he, and we all know how President Obama speaks, um, but he was uh, being waited on by an African-American man who was in the process of giving him some change for his 20 or whatever, and President Obama said, no, we straight. Now, that's not how President Obama talks when he's addressing the nation, but he was addressing somebody with whom he shared a whole bunch of linguistic conventions, and so he was code switching. He was speaking the way that he would speak to that person. So is that like when Donald Trump said two Corinthians when <laughs> quoting the Bible? That would be failing to know the code, I oh, think, okay. as opposed to, yeah. You can't code switch if you don't know the code. Well, I mean, I don't know. Do you, I observed your transition, such as it was, uh, from a Midwesterner <laughs> to an Easterner. I mean, did you feel like you ultimately did have to become a code switcher to a, to a certain extent? Yeah. But I don't think that harmed me in any way. I know um, I married a man from Hartford, and when I hang up after talking to my brothers, yeah. he knows I've been on the phone with them, <laughs> and he knows that I'm fixing to get upset if he repeats back to me. <laughs> and I will tell him it, when he tries a Missouri accent that I speak your language. You can just go ahead and talk. But absolutely. And it depends on if I'm in a classroom, if I'm in Missouri, if I'm tired or whatever. Yeah. So, Humphrey, is, part of this is, of course, there are countries that have an academy that just kind of decides stuff. They have a, an ensconced Peter Sokolowski, you know. <laughs> to what degree internationally is, is, is this a common thing that you would find things that are essentially standard in, you know, the West Midlands or something, but not in London or pick a country? Oh, yeah, yeah. of course. I mean, it happens all over the place. But we're talking about several different things at the same time. When we talk about code switching, what we're generally talking about is switching in a particular utterance between two different forms of the language or two different languages. So, for example, Latino speech very frequently moves backwards and forwards between Spanish and English in an American context. You would expect that. And indeed, when the kids come home from school, um, they will discuss the school in English, but they will discuss something around the home in Spanish. I mean, it's just, it happens perfectly normally. Now, what happens between two languages can also happen within a language, so that we can move from one form of speech to another. I would say that when you're talking to your family off there in the Midwest, wherever the hell that place is, um, Ozarks... Noted. Yeah. What, what exactly is an Ozark? Uh, Are you fixing to piss me off? <laughs> I would have guessed that the uh, language prop panel would be the one where I had these kinds of discipline problems, but... Um... Well, never sit together, ever. I, I happened, to, I happened to, to turn on the radio the other day when some, I've forgotten what the circumstances were. In fact, it wasn't clear when I turned the radio on because, because they were interviewing somebody who was extremely Southern who said, this was the first thing I heard, but wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Three of them. <laughs> yes, they mean exactly. it. <laughs> yes, yeah. Now, where were we? Um, on the question of code switching, if I want to communicate with somebody who I think is likely to 
use a form of speech that I wouldn't normally use. To some extent, I will adapt my mode of speaking to that person. Not only will I change the vocabulary, but I'll also change the sentence structure. I will, under certain circumstances, use sentences in a different kind of way because I am, in effect, imitating the person I'm speaking to. And that happens all the time. You can study this. It's very simple. Uh, just simply take a chunk of, of conversation and analyze it, and you'll see that people are negotiating the linguistic space in which they're going to communicate. And that happens in 100 different, 101 different ways, vocabulary and all kinds of other things. By the same token, if I really don't want to have to deal with you, <laughs> then I'm going to back off in the opposite direction. That's when words like ontology start appearing. <laughs> um, and so you find a situation in which people are, in fact, seeking to avoid communication while, in fact, communicating. Code switching is, um, is a phenomenon that happens most frequently under circumstances where you're actually in a group of people, and so that process of negotiation becomes extremely complicated. But anyway, that's, that's how I think code switching tends to work. So Peter's life is, is from what I can tell, just a series of language emergencies. You know, like, <laughs> I sort of picture, I've never been up there to Merriam-Webster, but I just feel like yellow lights are flashing and stuff. Like, you know, I mean, you know, the other day, uh, Susan Rice, in, while talking about unmasking, mm. and I would imagine unmasking is its own kind of language emergency. What does this term mean? Everybody's using it right now. And she said, I leaked nothing to nobody and never have and never would. And we'll, we'll come back to that, because that's not, I think, code switching. It's something else. But, uh, but I want Peter to walk us through what his life is like with these language emergencies. And I, I'm going to pick one. So uh, back in, in mid-March, around March, I think, 11th or 12th, uh, on Saturday Night Live, Scarlett Johansson was the host. And they had a skit in which she was playing Ivanka Trump. And she was um, doing an ad for a fragrance called Complicity. And so the ads had things like a feminist, an advocate, a champion for women. But like how? She's loyal, devoted, but probably should have bounced after the whole Access Hollywood bust thing. Mm -hmm. And then the sketch concluded, complicit, the fragrance for the woman who can stop all this, but won't. <laughs> um, and so March 13th, that was the first time lookups spiked, right? So you should explain this. You, you know who's looking up what, when. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating thing because the dictionary, we, we say we tell the truth about words. And what that used to mean is we, we research the, the definitions. And so we get evidence uh, from usually, usually, usually written sources. Uh, we have, I think, the largest body of collected evidence of any language in the world is about 16, one, six, 16 million individual slips of paper um, on our editorial floor that, are, uh, that represent the citation files. Now, much of that is, of course, electronic. Um, and and uh, the idea of searching large, enormous uh, texts is easy and instantaneous. So what we are able to do by putting the dictionary online, which is, by the way, 21 years now that we've had the dictionary online, we are able to see what is, for you all, a very private act, which is to say you look up a word in the dictionary, 
and nobody knows when or why or, or which word, but as a collective act, if many thousands of you look up the same word at the same time, we notice um, because that data uh, changes and it spikes. And it's a long tail. We've got 180,000 or so definitions uh, or words that are defined in that dictionary. And so that if uh, one or two of those words go to the top 10 or top 20, then we really know what America's thinking about for that moment. And so, yes, a complicit has had a couple, two significant spikes in the last month. The first being um, the, the morning after the Saturday Night Live, and especially the Monday after when it's being watched on video in offices everywhere. Um, uh, and but then when uh, Ivanka Trump was in interviewed, and I believe, I don't know what her quote was. She said, I don't know what the... She said, I don't know what it means to be complicit. But yeah. you know, I hope time will prove that I've done a good job, and much more importantly, that my father's administration uh, is a su the success that I know it to be. And she also said, uh, she's talking to Gail King on CBS, and she says, if being complicit is wanting to be a force for good and to make a positive impact, then I'm complicit. Of course, that's actually not what complicit yeah, does I'm afraid, mean. So I'm, afraid to, I'm afraid to say that that is not what complicit means because, it, it, because it's always malign. It's always malign. The thing is, there, there have been several instances when there have been words that spike that were uh, really aimed at the dictionary. That is to say, Sean Spicer was asked in the middle of a press briefing by the New York Times reporter if he could define the word betrayal. And his answer was, I'm not going to define the word. Well, I mean, the whole country's watching, and you better believe that they all looked up betrayal um, because here's the guy and then there was another one there was um, feminism where Kellyanne Conway said I disagree with the accepted definition of feminism and of course the entire country looked up the accepted definition of feminism uh, and then just recently now we have complicit where the, the definition itself was in question and so what, what, what I like about this I was saying that we thought telling the truth about words meant writing honest definitions but it turns out that's only half of it because now we can tell the truth about words by reporting reporting that data and by telling everybody, telling America what we are thinking about in real time, which is what we do on Twitter and, in, and, and on, on social media. And it is a ceaselessly fascinating prism through which to view the news. We are not seeing the most important word. We are not seeing the key word necessarily of any given story, but we are seeing the word that sent people to the dictionary. Those are two different things. And it's important to remember that among the most looked up words in the last year are fascism and demagogue. Uh, but it's also important to remember that those lookups are neither diagnoses nor accusations uh, because curiosity is not ignorance and we are good at reading data but not good at reading minds and there's no way for me to know whether you agree or disagree with any politician or with any description that's not the point it turns out that fascism is a hard word to spell first of all and also that demagogue and fascism both have fascinating classical roots. We've got demagogue from the Greek and fascism from the Latin, um, and they, they both have real stories. Bio, we call them etymologies in, in, in dictionaries. That's the biography of the word. And you all have the pictures of the fasces on the back of your dimes. So the fascism is connected to the 20th century in terms of um, Mussolini. It's connected to the ancient society of Rome as well. So we have these different reasons to look up words that may have nothing to do, again, with any kind of diagnosis or accusation because words matter and we are all taking responsibility for their meanings. That's what is interesting to me and to prove the, the cultural relevance of the dictionary, we now have the data to back it up. A hand for the dictionary.
I ask who runs your Twitter account? <laughs> it's, it's not me. It's, it's a wonderful and, and well, and, and this is an important point because we've been doing this on our homepage since 2010. So there's nothing new about reporting sure. uh, which words people are looking up. In fact, the very first one was the word austerity, referring to the Greek debt crisis. I mean, it, it's words in the news. Um, it just so happens that the news are overwhelmingly political these days, but it could be from the World Series, it could be from Hollywood, it could be from pop culture. I mean, the big word, uh, you know, when Michael Jackson died had to do with the condition of his body, emaciated. The big word after 9-11 was the word surreal. Um, you know, so we have these, these different, you know, key words that are associated with events. But we recently have changed the way that we tell that story. Um, in other words, we have an executive for our digital products who has been with us a few years, and she finally said, look, you word people, you editors, you lexicographers, you're passionate, you're funny, you love what you do, you, you, you have you know, a great way of telling these stories, why are we not projecting that fun um, uh, online? Because the Twitter feed was sort of a wallpaper, it was the word of the day and just you know, a couple definitions here and there, and so she had this idea of spreading this kind of uh, anecdote, it could be about etymology, it could be about the current use of, of language, um, and she hired a, a brilliant woman, her name is Laura Natural, um, and they, that's in our New York office, she studied American literature, she she was going to be a professor, has a great love of language, and I think it's important to think, too, she's not someone who came from some kind of social media background. She was a language lover. She's a word nerd. And it turns out she just has the right touch, oh, uh, she uh, and she has the wit and the wisdom to present our data, which it is data. Mm -hmm. um, and we had she did a tweet about fact after alternative fact was used um, that was retweeted 80,000 times. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, when she was hired, January of 2016, there were about 80,000 followers that we had on Twitter. And I think today we have 407 or something. You so owe it's, it to yourself. It's, yeah, it, I'm a follower. It's It's wonderful. been a terrific uh, a learning curve. But again, we ha haven't changed anything about what we do in terms of reporting those facts. But the medium is the message sometimes. We're going to be right back with one more segment here. We're live at Watkinson School with this tremendous panel on language. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from our friends at Event Resources. Amanda Fish's pronouns are some, none, any, and fish. The part of Bill Curry was played by Edie White. On tomorrow's show, meet some people who believe that one life partner is not enough. The world of polyamory. And now, back to Colin. Michelle, I want to, this is something that you and I were emailing about and talking a little bit about earlier tonight. Look, some of the people who are looking up the word fascism want to know how to spell it and they want to know where it came from and stuff like that. Some of the people looking up the word fascism, fascism either want to know whether they can get away with it applying it to Donald Trump or whether they can make the argument that it's grossly unfair to uh, apply it to Donald Trump, either as a candidate in 2016 or as president in 2017. And this is something I know that you're very interested in, is how different groups try to control the same word in different ways. So, as we say, could you talk about that? <laughs> so, uh, absolutely. So, one of the things that I like to read and research on is how we use words in our culture, like patriotism. It means something very, very different to different groups of people. Um, we have a section of our broad American culture, cultural landscape, really, that hinges onto that idea in a certain way and projects that. You have another section that kind of views it almost the opposite, and this is without becoming too accusatory in any sense of the word, because I am on Twitter, and that's not a good thing to do. But 
When you have two groups of people using the same words to two different extents, you get to the point where language itself, I think, becomes obfuscated. You get to the point where people can use the same words but have two separately controlled conversations. So if we were to perhaps look at the map of America regionally, and for example, not to touch on anything too recent, but the arguments about uh, the use of the Confederate flag in the South. For some, that was a regional patriotism. For some, that was a sense of pride, a distinguishment of the region. It was tied to their history and a certain kind of culture. For others from the same region, or for perhaps from different regions who saw it as problematic, that concept of patriotism as applied to that thing in that space had a far more negative connotation. It was a sign of oppression, of divisiveness, not unity, a sign of systematic abuse. And if what I did in that time was I was looking, I don't necessarily read news articles, I read what people write about the news articles. I read the way they react to it. And it, it gets nasty and dirty, as I think many of us would expect it to. But you kind of see that you end up with a very, very polarized discussion. And language, in that sense, starts to fail to bring people together, which is almost, I think, the opposite of what language is meant to do, which is open up communication and facilitate conversation between people on the same subject. Yeah, I think we've reached a point in yeah. some of our conversations where deciding on the meaning of a word in a particular context, decides a whole bunch of other things. And one thing in the emails that I was sending around about this, I mean, one way it's come up recently is about the word lie. There are lots of different ways to express the concept of something that has no basis in fact. For example, you could say it has no basis in fact. Um, you can say it's a baseless claim. You can say it's a falsehood, an untruth. Um, the word lie seems to mean something else. And, and news organizations have struggled over this question. For, for example, the New York Times, twice in its headlines about Donald Trump, have used the word lie. The first time, I believe, was about the birther uh, argument, or the birther lie, actually, as they called it in a headline, uh, that he had used in the past. I think he said, said something like, Trump backs away from birther lie, uh, but something, something else. Uh, and then more recently, they referred to his claim about three to five million people voting illegally in the election in a headline as a lie. So Susan, this gets us onto tricky ground, right? A lie is a little bit different from, say, something that has no basis in fact. I understand that lie is a loaded word for some, and a falsehood sort of softens it. But in my mind, fundamentalist that I am, a lie is a lie. And you can dress it up, and you can say it's not based in fact, or Trump said with no evidence that. Hmm. Um, so it's something from a fevered dream, and it's a lie. Although, Humphrey, lie does contain the notion of conscious intention, right? Yes, I would have said so. Um, if I say something that is wrong, and I don't know it's wrong, then I'm not lying. So if I I'm just actually not expressing the truth. I won't even say not telling the truth, because that's something different. So we're assuming if we call something a lie, this is from one of the articles you sent around, mm -hmm. then we are inside Donald Trump's head and we know that he meant to say something wrong. That is exactly right. what we're saying. Right. Yes. So NPR, not WNPR, but NPR has decided not to use the word lie for the most part, almost never to use the word lie for that exact reason. They, they can't look inside the head of Donald Trump or anybody else. I mean, unless it can really be established there was a conscious intent to deceive and distort, <laughs> um, they can't say lie. They'll use one of those other words. The New York Times has decided to go kind of a bridge 
further. I did that right now. Oh, no, farther. Farther. <laughs> well, it's hard to say, really. F further. <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> it's tough. See, when you really think about it, that's a yeah, tough one. Because you're using a metaphor of right. distance. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> the world comes crashing in on itself. <laughs> it's all... But no, the, the, you, what you're really talking about is decorum. You know, uh, not just journalistic decorum, but also sort of linguistic de decorum of a kind that maybe hadn't been called into question in this way uh, before. And the fact is, English has this peculiarity of having different root languages, so that the, the, the most uh, emotional words in English are the Anglo-Saxon words, the, the short words, all the swears. Um, you know, they're one syllable. You know, there's a reason that um, John F. Kennedy in his speech said, ask not what your country can do. And in that same speech, whenever he referred to a foreign place, it was the word nation. He made a distinction that's artificial between country and nation. But country sounds like home. It sounds like mom. It sounds like all of our swear words. You know, the, in other words, the Anglo-Saxon words are the ones that bring emotion. Lie is one of those. We, they, we, we don't argue about the use of the word prevaricate, you know, because English has more than one word for everything. And it just so happens that, as with all Latin words, as we talked about, it immediately adds emotional distance to the phrase so that you, you can say osculation or you can say kiss. You know? And so we have these, you know, these ways of distancing that exist in English in a kind of a unique way. And lie is so on the nose and it's so emotional. And the decorum and the treatment of the president in, by, by journalists has always been very respectful. Um, NPR has a, has a, a, has a, a little-known rule which is that they never splice the president's remarks, who, no matter who the president is. Whereas with other newsmakers, they might just cut out the middle part that's sort of boring and, and, and put it together. But they'll never do that for the president. Um, and so there are certain, there are kinds of, you know, this kind of decorum that is exercised that now is being put into question. But it's being put into question because we're all in a kind of a new, a new era. Isn't this part of language evolving? If you're dealing with someone who's lying, can't you call it that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know that I would call that part of language's evolution. I mean, I, I think that, that that's a change that's happening in journalism. I mean, but just in general, if we're talking about this, you know, I, I'm, I, the drinking word for the day is unprecedented. This is mm -hmm. unprecedented. I've heard yeah. that so many times. So if we're in a new environment where the New York Times has decided to call something a lie. Mm -hmm. Isn't that a bit of a change at the yeah. decorum with which we right. are and, approaching? And what we really are talking about standards and practices. So there's probably a style file, a style guide for the New York Times that basically said, yeah, we're not going to use the word yeah. lie regarding you know, public figures uh, in, in headlines, for example. And they had to change, change that rule. That was a lively conversation. I'm glad you could hear it. Thanks to Watkinson and to everybody else who helped out. Bye-bye for now. Oh,